Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dowzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. Who can take a sunrise? Sprinkle it with dew. <laughs> Cover it with chocolate and a miracle or two. Oh, no, 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 not that Candyman. Today, to discuss both the 1992 horror thriller and the Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta 2021 remake, is our favorite reason duo. Features editor Peter Suderman. Hey, folks. Thanks for having me. And the book's editor and author of United States of Paranoia, Jesse Walker. Howdy. Now, I wouldn't call Candyman meta-horror, necessarily. I don't really think it fits that uh, label super well, but it is reflective and self-aware, and in that nature of its treatment of things like folklore and specifically urban legend, um, they're both a huge part of these films. What do the Candymen do to sort of reframe or invert horror tropes with urban legends in mind? Uh, And how do you think it differs or is similar between the original and the 2021 sequel. So for my part, I, I actually uh, did sort of describe it as a, a, a meta as a meta genre piece in my review. Um, and the reason for that was just that I think that, you know, this is sort of the, the newest film uh, in the series, which is both a sequel and in some ways a reboot and expansion of the original, uh, you know, sort of designed to take it into a new era, I think is... In many ways, it's not just a political horror film. It is a, it is a kind of a movie about how horror films have become political and, and the ways in which we, we take, we sort of understand them as political texts. And so it is, it is in some sense about the genre and about the way the genre uh, has been received both in the past and today with the sort of resurgence of social horror films, notably from uh, one of this film's co-writers and producers, Jordan Peele. Um, and it is a movie, the new film is in many ways a movie about black art and how black art has either been appropriated or exploited or, um, you know, the, the place it has uh, come to, uh, the, the way it has sort of come to sit um, it, within in a certain sort of white society. Um, and so it's, it's maybe not a meta horror film in that it is mostly about the horror genre, you know, about monster, you know, sort of about, well, what do we really think about monsters? Although I could maybe make an argument. It it is a little bit about that. Like what is, what sorts of myths scare us and why do these, you know, and and why? Um, But it is, it is a sort of, there is a lot of self commentary as well as uh, sort of meta genre commentary. I think working in the, the subtext and just sort of just barely under the surface of the new film. And that's part of what makes it interesting. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously, horror movies from the beginning have engaged with folklore and legends. You know, I mean, vampires were not invented for the screen. They weren't invented by Bram Stoker either. Um, so there's, that's always been part of it. Um, and the slasher genre, and, and you can debate whether or not the original Candyman is properly a slasher film, um, but it's certainly at least partly there. Um, and it was taken by a lot of people as one when it first came out, um, has always had, you know, a bit of the urban legend, um, to it. Um, and now, and of course, 
after Candyman, you have a whole series of movies called Urban Legend, you know, but even before then, I mean, that's sort of part of how they were structured and, and so on. But Candyman was, I don't want to necessarily say it was the first to be the, I, I mean, there's been meta horror movies going back to, you know, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, you know, but it, it, it really was about folklore in a way that most previous horror movies had, uh, that drew on folklore did not. Um, it's about urban legends. It's about rumor. You could almost think of the the use mention distinction here, right? Other 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 yeah. uh, horror films would use for folklore, and this one is actually like mentioning it, like just to describe it in some ways. Yeah, and, although it then it does both. It, it's not one of those movies where you know, the, the, like when those old Val Luden films where the the big monster turns out to be our fear of a monster who's actually fictional. <laughs> you know, it, it's a um, it, it's a uh, it, it's one where there actually is a Candyman who appears. But it's not just about urban legends; it's about them in a pretty sophisticated way. I mean, some movies they might have this as kind of the backstory for this monster Candyman, but they wouldn't do the thing where at the beginning of the film we uh, see it. It described in this sort of um, this uh, suburban um, uh, context, uh, predominant. I mean, it, you know, from being told by this white person at the university um, with no connection to what we eventually find is the origins of the Candyman legend um, within, you know, within the story. Um, and then late, and then, you know, by accident, the folklorist stumbles on uh, the versions that have been told around Cabrini Green and finds out the ways that. Um, people enact the legends. Uh, I mean, there's this whole uh, process that's called ostension um, in uh, folklore studies and anthropology, which uh, covers everything from um, just legend tripping, people going to the spot where they've heard there's a ghost or something like that, um, to people actually trying to reenact, like, hey, I got the idea, not that this really happens but if, if someone said i got the idea I, i'm going to actually put a razor blade in the candy because i um i read about that happening um it's and in fact there's a, there's the one case um the one proven case of someone uh putting poison in halloween candy was someone trying to kill his own kid um who used wanted to use the urban legend as sort of the uh, the cover story, saying, "Ah, uh, the pixie." I, I don't remember what was in the pixie sticks, but it was um, it was obvious clearly someone did this. But it turned out there was the only person who got it was this one kid, and you know, which is actually sort of interestingly relevant here in that Candyman is somebody who attacks at least in the in the short story and then in the first the 1990s films he is someone who attacks within the community he's not trying to attack others right and and there is a sense in which he is a story that is made up to hide the deeper horrors you know the that are uh, that are actually happening um you know in the first in the short story in the big uh, english uh, block, uh, housing block projects and then in um you know in the public housing in chicago in the 1990s yeah, and, and, and one other thing I want to say, um, just while I'm praising the ways that this is, you know, more sophisticated and people seeing the, um, the ads for it on TV when it first came out might have suspected, um, I can go, I could tell you my memories of that, um, <laughs> is, um, the fact that there's this real attention to the, uh, these physical and social environments. You can tell that the, that Bernard Rose, who made the film, uh, was thinking about how would it be different in the suburbs from where it, what the versions told in Cabrini Green? Um, what are the, uh, the forms of racial and class and state power that shape this? Uh, there's this whole discussion in the, uh, in the movie 
where the folklorist Helen um, has, learns that her apartment building was originally created as public housing, but it was then they decided there was this was too close to where the people in the better part of town live, so they redid it as condos, but it still had buried beneath it the sort of remnants of the old uh, structure. Um, and, 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 and it, it, all this is done in, in a really, you know, smart way. Um, and, and again, I, and I saw this movie pretty much as it came out in 92. I saw it on video in 93, like after it came out, um, you rented it from a blockbuster. No, I think I got it from a local Ann Arbor joint, but oh, man. it could have been a blockbuster <laughs> Old school. if we were, um, if we had a car instead of walking around. Um, <laughs> and we were, I mean, we were kind of expecting something good, me and my friends, because we had seen Bernard Rose's earlier movie, Paper House, which is really good. If you've never seen it, it's um, somewhere on the border between horror and dark fantasy. But I mean, everything about the advertisements um, sort of just said this was going to be another slasher movie. Um, and if I looked up some of the old reviews, it got some pretty good reviews. But I mean, even the people who sort of like understood it was trying to do something more than, you know, a Friday the 13th clone. Um, with, I mean, like one, uh, one reviewer called it pretentious, you know, because of this. And then, and then turned around and complained that it still was gory. You know, it was like, it was both too highbrow, too, trying to be too highbrow and also too lowbrow at the same time. Um, so it, it was, uh, it was a real pleasant surprise. Um, and, and marked a real, you know, uh, contrast not just with some of the other movies, but like, that were coming out around the time. But the first two Candyman sequels, which we should not dwell on, we should mention <laughs> their existence. They do, in fact, exist. <laughs> the second one was directed by Bill Condon, who was the same guy who directed yeah, I- Gods and Monsters, <laughs> and and you know has now gone on to like do the Disney uh, sort of quasi live action Beauty and the Beast film that came out uh, within the last couple of years, and has had like a real big Hollywood career and actually done some interesting films, and yet also he made Candy. What was the name of this one? Uh, like Candyman, the Darkness of the Flesh, or so, I mean the. Uh, sorry. Farewell to the Candyman, flesh. Farewell to the flesh. Right. Like that's a- the only thing I remember about that movie is that it's bad. That I cannot remember <laughs> a single scene. All I remember was me after watching it. Say, well, it's like how James Cameron got his. Everybody thinks his first movie was The Terminator, but his actual first directing project was um, and uh, one of the old um, Corman horror films, uh, Piranha 2, The Spawning. Which was a water oh, film oh. with a lot of water-related production problems that would go on to... Sorry, this is a little off topic, but... Uh, <laughs> I, well, Oliver Sadness. Stone's first film. Uh, they're, they're the people who think he debuted with Platoon. And then they're the people who are a little bit more trivia happy, and they know about an earlier not-so-good horror movie called The Hand. But in the 70s, he, made a, he directed a horror movie called Seizure, which is just utterly crappy i i was i mean i like horror movies i was like oh hey here's oliver stone he's not going to be trying to make a big statement i'll have fun with it it is just garbage so i recommend it for people who like um early garbage of oliver stone but now i'm sorry now we've i think that answers your question no we really love some garbage horror so (laughs) but that's actually worth talking about just a little bit just to situate this movie in the context in which the 1992 film came out and the way that it was positioned for audiences, not as this actually somewhat as Jesse says, sophisticated and almost intellectual kind of a deconstruction of 
of, uh, you know, uh, racial divides in, you know, in in, uh, 1990s Chicago at the peak of the crime wave, but instead just to sort of yet another, here's Jason, here's Freddie, and they're going to come after some, you know, some people who probably have have done some bad stuff and deserve it, or do they? And it's anyway, uh, but it was like, it's not that. It's really not that, even if the studio was trying to position it that way. Also, that was really interesting, Jesse, that you have already brought up the way this that the first film and then the uh, the new one um, are both really interestingly architectural movies. Right. And so that's literally built into the plot, just in the sense that they are um, that they are about buildings and about structures. Uh, but the first film in particular, it's it's notable that it was it was literally a representation of structural racism before decades before that term was in you know common usage it was not something that you would see in newspapers or you know spoken on cable news at the time even if it was you know sort of being passed around within academia and that is what that movie is is again directly and literally about are the physical structures and the way the layout of buildings and cities um and and places divide people uh by race and class I, I just actually wanted to build on that um, a little bit, um, so to speak, um, because if you go back to the original short story um, by Clive Barker, which is not, I mean, it, it's in, it's set in England and everyone is, as far as we know, white, there's no discussion of, of people's race. Um, uh, so we don't know for sure, but it, it's like it's racial divides are not part of the story. Um, but the geometry and, and architecture still are. The very first sentence um, says that the perfect geometry of the Spectre Street estate was only visible from the air. And then um, the next couple of paragraphs have lay out this contrast between um, the visions of the city planners and architects who had designed this and the miserable um, actual practical lives of the people who live within it, which is a, a very classic political theme, at least in sort of um, anti-authoritarian uh, politics about, um, you know, the, the, the difference between, um, you know, the planners and the people who have to live within the plans. And then they, they actually say in, um, I think, the third paragraph um, that the architects would not have been shamed by the deterioration of the estate uh, their brainchild, they would doubt, doubtless argue, was as brilliant as ever. Its geometries as precise, its ratios as calculated. It was people who had spoiled Spectre Street. So that's sort of implicit there at the beginning. Um, and then the first film begins. I mean, I mean, again, like the line in the in the uh, uh, in the story was that it was only vis- the perfect geometry is only visible from the air. It begins with these aerial shots of Chicago. I mean, really beautiful king shots with Philip Glass on the soundtrack, you know, very uh, geometric uh, pieces of music um, as we're sort of watching from above before we sort of plunge down into um, the subterranean depths of it. And one thing I liked about the um, 2021 Candyman is that it begins with a callback to that. Uh, well, it begins, begins with the mirror image of the Universal's uh, logo. Like you're looking at all this through a mirror, which fits the story, of course, and you're playing the distorted version of the Candyman theme. But um, then we find ourselves again looking at the architecture of Chicago with Philip Glass again on the soundtrack. But instead of from the... Um, uh, sky looking down uh, from aerial shots, it is from the ground looking up um, in this really sort of weirdly distorted, he might have even been using like a fisheye lens or something, but sort of just very odd and distinctive, um, uh, uh, you know, 
visual impression that it leaves on you. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's pretty interesting. It, it's a, um, on the one hand, it, it represents the fact that since the first film came out, Cabrini Green has been raised and buried. I mean, that's a plot point in the, uh, in the most recent movie. Um, and so we're, we're now sort of like seeing something that's about to come back up from the dead. Um, it's also another uh, reference to mirrors. Uh, I mean, because you're seeing the mirror image of uh, what because Candyman appears when you say his name five times while looking into a mirror, right? And so it's just for for listeners here who who have not seen this or do not know all of the particulars of this of yeah. this myth. Uh, that's the way you summon him, um, <laughs> and it's and true. It, it's a hundred percent true. It happens. Do it's, not try this at no. home. <laughs> so this is this is actually part of the of what's interesting about this film series and I think one of the reasons why it has stuck around with us is because the myth in a way is structured a little bit as a dare to the viewer it says it it says you know what here's a story it's probably not true it's just a movie but you could try this at home and find out and that 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 brings you in and makes and like adds to adds to the the kind of uh, it's 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 a very good psychological scare trick for uh, um for a film to use uh and it it's it's quite effective i think even if uh even if you remain completely skeptical about the the myth but it's why it's part of it's part of why this like candyman has has stuck around in pop culture not just as a movie series but as something that has actually taken on a life of its own a little bit outside of the series is because people actually will will watch these movies and then will like go look at a mirror and say Candyman five times. The Candyman legend in the films is itself built from earlier urban legends, including famously like where I grew up, it was saying Bloody Mary into the mirror. I know there are other versions with other names, um, but Candyman itself was created um for the for the film, or originally for the short story, but you know, uh, but then really, and it's in the form that we know it now in, in the film. And it's interesting to watch not only how it became an urban legend, but I poked around online and I found people assuming it was an older urban legend that was picked up by the film. Um, and it, and and this is you know, I mean, it's it's almost, I mean, the, this is sort of like I, I mentioned earlier the idea of ostension, the sort of like you enact the the urban legend. Well. This not only is uh, the film itself is an act of ostention, it is about people <laughs> doing ostention, and then it encourages or at least inspires people out in the in the audience to go off and, and do it themselves. And maybe eventually we'll have someone killing folks with hooks um, and everything. But it's 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 just also. fascinating to think that we are what less than forty years out from the or from the first incarnation of Candyman uh, as as we are discussing Candyman today. Yes, obviously there was Bloody Mary and there were all sorts of other myths built into Barker's story, but I think that story came out in 84, 85, something like that. Um, cause it was part of the, part of his books of blood series. And already the origins are murky. Already there are people who are sort of like, where did this actually come from? And so it's funny to think about like 300 years from now. Will people just sort of think of Candyman as like a collective myth that popped up and no one really knows where it started? And will or you know will they find this podcast and be like, no, we know because there was a podcast that explained all of this and talked about it at the time. But you can literally watch this happening in real time, at where where this this story is sort of bleeding out into the culture and just sort of becoming a thing that everybody shares and owns and retells amongst themselves, and nobody knows exactly where it came from or exactly how it 
uh, how exactly how it got started, uh, which, of course, is in some ways the subject of the new film and the, the ways that, you know, sort of uh, that there is the ways that uh, there is a kind of collective ownership of this of this myth of a what became in the first in the first mo- movie, not in the first short story, but this myth of a uh, black killer who stalks the projects. What I noticed is specifically we were talking about symbols and uh, Jesse brought up mirrors a lot. Um, and that was the the symbol that jumped out at me and fascinated me the most, specifically in the second film. Because the first one is it's a mishmash of a lot of these horror tropes because we're talking about urban legends. You know, you've got razor blades and candy. You've got the his body's covered with bees, which is sort of a wicker man homage. You have all of these different symbols and tropes in a in a sort of you know melding together and constituting this new myth and and sort of uh in in this manner and then the second film the one thing that they really lean into is the mirror and mirrors in horror are it, it, you know it's a common trope you know you are looking at yourself you're expecting to see yourself you turn the light off or on and there's suddenly someone behind you um it's you know it's a, a well-trod jump scare uh type of you know event that occurs there but i th- I, I think it's worth interrogating what the symbol of the mirror specifically in horror can do. And I think there's a reading that says something like, oh, you know, we're looking at ourselves. Humanity is the real monster. It's inside of us and everyone has this potential. And yeah, you can make that. And there's that's certainly been done before. But I think it, there is something a little bit more to it. Um, there is... Specifically, you talked about the structure and the architecture of the second of, of both of these films. And I think the second one, the 2021 version, takes that and almost uses mirrors as a funhouse distorting technique, another sort of horror trope that we can borrow the language from, which is that you are constantly, even in spaces that do not have conventional mirrors, there are reflections. Um, that lead off into infinite and deceptive spaces all throughout the film. There is the elevator that he gets into at the library that has mirrors on some walls, but then when the metallic doors close and he has the the tape recording of of Helen in that he's listening to, that also becomes a mirror, and he is in this what becomes a, a reflective sort of you know, interstellar tesseract of of reflections of himself. Um the the one that really stuck out with me is though when he is visiting the art critic in her home and he's standing in the hallway and she comes into uh into the room and sort of asks if he's okay and he turns around and you realize you're seeing characters shot in their reflection tons of times without realizing it he turns around and you're seeing the real him but she's in the reflection and you're you're seeing you know if you position two mirrors on sides it creates this infinity that begins to bend up and so there is a notion that you are seeing a reflection of yourself like a a vision of the self but there is also the the sort of constant telling and retelling over time begins to bend as folklore does and truth itself and what the story is distorts. 
Um, and I, I thought that was really fascinating. And you can take it one step further and understand that because it is shot, it, it, it is a film, it is shot on a camera, that there is a lens inherent to that process that is capturing the light and reflecting it up into the prism to capture it and put it on uh, a tape or even digitally if you're using you know digital cameras uh, like it were but i'm so fascinated by that symbol and what it can do i think it lends itself to what they talk about at the end of both of those movies which is whatever they say becomes the truth. It is not necessarily about creating a realistic representation of what you fear. It is really more about what that story and the connotations build up to that will live on through this narrative, you know, oral storytelling um, that that really interests me. Um, And it also, you know, leads itself to uh, a question I had, which was about folklore and urban legend and the transition that you get when it goes from oral storytelling, you know, the, the sort of general medium of urban legend usually, into stories that are mass-produced and, uh, you know, dispersed. I think the mirror uh, imagery is really interesting, and the way it appears in the new film versus in the 1992 film is is really notable because in the first film Candyman is invoked in the mirror but then he appears in real life in a physical form and in the new film he only exists in the mirror and he can which means that it requires an act of self reflection to even see what he's he's doing right to 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 watch the murders and so you have to look back at yourself in some sense in order to understand what he's doing and also and also to understand what he has done and of course that idea then invokes sort of the old you know the the the, uh, the cliche about art holding up a a mirror to society um and this is a movie about art's place in society and you can only see its effects in refraction bounced off of something else right and so you can never look directly at the thing now this is a little bit more complicated in the very final scene but that's basically the 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 system that the movie uses (laughs) and so it is it is it is taking that idea from the first film of oh you you have to look into the mirror to call him and saying no actually you have to keep looking in the mirror to see what the monster is doing um, can we say a little bit about how the more recent movie adri- talks about art? Um, because it it was it, it was um, it had a sort of sophistication to that that the first one could surprise people with the way it talks about um, folklore and urban legends. Um, just little things like um, I, I a lot of I'm not someone who hates contemporary art. I think a lot of it's good. I think when you go to the contemporary part, art part of the museum, if it's more hit or miss, it's because there hasn't been the longer winnowing out process but one thing that you you learn after a while is that the artist statement is always bullshit there's there's like a little thing next to it where they try to explain what they do and it's like you know they are inevitably like more um more uh better at expressing themselves through their art than they are through explaining it to like whatever 
you know, grant maker. And a lot of times it, you can tell they're just going through the motions. And in this, there's like a moment, like there's like about for about 10 seconds on screen, they have an artist statement, like close up for it. And I was like reading it really quickly and they, they sort of, they captured the bullshit perfectly. This, that's exactly what it would sound like. You know, um, there's, uh, there's, I mean, the, um, and then on, and on, on a less negative note, like things like, you know, the silhouettes were pretty clearly, um, meant to resemble the sort of silhouette art of Kara Walker, um, who's a black artist who, uh, who's, who, well, her work this is very much like the way it's done there. I mean, if, if you watch the film, then you, I actually went to look up whether she had done that for the film. And in fact, it was more of a, a copy. Um, a but, special then, shout out. I'll, I'll just want to say if anyone has not ever heard about or seen any work of manual cinema who does the shadow puppetry, uh, in the second film, uh, that really evokes stuff during the credits and sort of the myth-making process. It's an amazing art collective, I believe, based out of Chicago, and they have done lots of using, like, very tactile analog overhead projectors and, and shadow puppetry, create these amazing live performances of movies. There's a, a performance of Frankenstein that early in the pandemic they released, as, or they performed live, and it's it's just really, really incredible stuff. So I just wanted to, that's my own personal plug of something people should check out if they really, really liked that aspect of the movie. I think also on, on the art front, too, that we haven't, we've talked about how it's a little bit meta, but in the new movie, since it just came out, we can do a little bit of explaining. So we have um, a black artist who's like, uh, I guess, like in a funk, let's say, like struggling to figure out like what his next project is. And um, he is in a relationship with a uh, black woman that is um, like a um, uh, she owns a gallery. I think she owns she owns the gallery. She's an exhibitor art world person of some sort. Yeah. Um, And then um there there's also like other prominent um characters so there's like a a white woman who is purchasing art but the big thing too here in terms of art we're all looking at it from a perspective of the writers of the movie are both black artists they're probably looking at it as a self-reflection as well um so it's kind of like again like back to that meta narrative of they're putting black artists on the screen and showing like through horror showing like different things that are happening to them but also taking in this personal aspect that they're also creating this black art in the movie sense so didn't want to lose sight of that there's a great bit uh in the early in the film when they're uh when they're uh at a gallery uh, and at a party at a gallery. And there is a middle-aged white female art critic who comes up and looks at um, the the piece that was created by the main character or one of the main characters, Anthony McCoy, uh, right? Who is the, who is the struggling artist here? Um, and, uh, and she's like doing the, you know, art critic, like kind of thing. Um, and it's just like, (laughs) and says something, uh, the, the quote that I have here is it speaks in didactic media cliches about the ambient violence of the gentrification (laughs) cycle. You're kind of the real, real pioneers of that cycle. And she's like sort of dismissing it. Um, and sort of just, you know, spouting the kind of, you know, art critic bullshit that, uh, Jesse was talking about. Um, And yet, this movie is also inviting people to do exactly that. We're here. 
the four of us doing, doing a little bit of what this movie is making fun of people doing, but also, but also, and, but also saying, look, we're, I'm obviously, I'm putting an object up for display and people are going to interpret it and people are going to be interested by it. Um, right. And part of, part of what is interesting is at first that critic dismisses his work, but then after there is a killing at the gallery, then she becomes interested and entranced. And so there's a sense in which this movie is saying, you know what, if we want to talk about the black experience, we've got to do it through the lens of horror, because otherwise you don't pay attention to us. Unless I've got somebody's guts being ripped out here, and I make it up, right, and I, and I do it through this, like, nobody's going to pay attention, and it's only through the sort of the gut spilling and the, the, the ex you know, only when we make this an exploitation film, uh, and a you know a B movie? Are you going to pay attention? And then everybody's like, "Oh my goodness, this is such a visionary work," um, you know. And and there is, I don't know if I think that's entirely true, um, but but it's certainly it's an interesting kind of like I said, meta criticism of the genre and the way that the you know sort of sophisticated social horror in the mold of of uh, of, of Jordan Peele the get out um us right you know sort of has become this object of fascination uh in part because it is using the uh, the the genre and all of the all all of the the fun and grabby uh, you know exploitation movie tricks to get people to talk about and to to engage with these underlying issues not just with the the blood and the guts but the real key moment in that scene for me was when she says you are kind and he does a little start behind her because he thinks she's making a racial reference um and it's and then she explains she means artists you know like she's talking about the pioneers of gentrification and so, um and it's that's a moment for well one thing that's going on there is the distortion effect something goes quickly through a mirror and gets misunderstood as landry was talking about um uh, although perhaps she had a little intent to uh, to twist a knife a little there at the same time, we don't know. I certainly took it that way. Yeah, I certainly was like yeah. she meant it. Like she it, knew. What it she was did. really. I mean, was that a clueless <laughs> moment or was it a uh, an insult and a deliberate insult? It's it's ambiguous. Um, but also, I think there's a little bit of anxiety there to you know the ba- black bourgeois, as they say, um, you know, artists um, in this gentrified area, um, you know, asking themselves you know like uh do i mean how do do we belong to quote unquote your kind um anymore or what kind do we belong to um and and that's uh, also one of the sort of themes of the movie um which it, again is sort of um something it can do because it, it's not being made by um a white english director adapting a white english horror writer's story it's being made by a black american director with a screenplay she wrote with two other americans at least one of whom is black um and it, it's it's it, it that that innately gives you a different perspective on um both the issues and the kind of story it is i mean it's another form of reflection the movie is looking back at itself and and i think there is a kind of interesting not full-fledged but at least sort of questioning self-criticism built into the film it is what it is it seems to be actively wondering if it is playing into the hands of, of basically of of critics like the woman being portrayed in the film and and sort of asking it seems to be asking itself am i just playing you know am i just doing the thing that i am saying is is you know that i'm critiquing um 
And that's part of what makes it really interesting. And also, that aspect of it also ties back to the Clive Barker short story um, from the 1980s, which again wasn't racial, but was a uh, in in focus, but was about class divisions. And it was a story about bubbled, self satisfied elites, mostly academics, uh, who hear all of these lurid tales, of, you know, about grotesque murders in public housing, and they don't believe it. They don't believe it because they haven't seen it and they haven't heard about it. And if they had not, if they haven't seen it and they haven't heard about it, then how could it possibly true? It's about people who cannot look outside of their own little tiny worlds um, and also can't look inside themselves, can't look in their own reflections. And, uh, and it's, it's a story that really reads, reads almost on the nose today. Um, in, you know, given our discussion, you know, the constant discussions about elites and their separation from the lives of, you know, of, of poor people. One of the ways that it seemed on the nose to me at first, but the more and more we discuss it, the more and more I appreciate this creative choice sort of in the writing that I think is is acknowledging that struggle between the anxiety of feeling like, I, I don't know if it's abandoning your community, but, you know, feeling like you are stuck between these two groups, the sort of bourgeois black artists and, you know, wanting to, you know, push back against the gentrification, you know, and commodification of black art is the name that Anthony chooses for his Candyman piece, which is Say My Name. Obviously a nod to the Candyman ritual, but I didn't realize until towards the end is obviously a reference to say her name or say his name. Black Lives Matter. Exactly. The Black Lives Matter uh, slogan, which is about confronting the reality and acknowledging the humanity of victims of police brutality. And by saying, say my name, you, you see Anthony react to that when they when they actually say the name of his piece after the first murder. And there's this like struggle within him as this sort of Candyman persona, possession, you know, however it's functioning within the story is beginning to sort of take hold for the first time. But he recognizes that he shouldn't feel that way, but it's still there. And the say my name is a is a sort of almost I think it reads more like an exasperated call to the people that are observing the film um, as opposed it, there is a, a challenge in in the daring, but it's almost like a dare like, yeah, say my name, look into the horror, not because it's a thrill, but because you need to confront the violence inherent in the structural racism and that exists in media and art as well as politics and society at large. It's also an invocation. And 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 the idea is not just you're invoking Candyman, but there's this sort of underlying idea that maybe in saying the name in the political sense of the last few years, um, that's an invocation too. And Without giving away how the film ends, let's just say that it raises the possibility of Candyman becoming a weapon. Um, if not the sort of golem-style protector of the community, then at the very least something that you can break glass in the, in case of emergency. There is a long history of rumor intersecting with politics. Um, and it's a... Uh, it's. I mean, in, in my book, I have... a. a 
a few pages discussion where I talk about the old rumors about the so-called night doctors, which this goes back to um, slave time, the idea um, that um, whites were um, kidnapping um, blacks and um, doing experiments on them. And there's an interesting sort of, I mean, as is often the case with folklore, people try to figure out the origins. There are some possibility that there, I mean, we know that there were some experiments done, um, that there is some underlying truth here. Um, this kind of speaks to what, um, Peter was talking about, uh, with, uh, people, if I didn't read it in a newspaper, did it happen? Well, we, we, we do know that, um, things like this happened at the same time. Do we know that the night doctor version of the story, some of which became very much more gothic than realistic is is um is is uh, what's true um no because actually it's another route uh that people have at least speculated about was that this was a disinformation campaign and i'm using disinformation in its old sense not as a sort of vague thing of people saying believing things you don't like um that uh white planters were using to sort of discourage pe- um newly freed slaves from going to the city they're saying well you know when you get up there um, they, you could be, uh, you could be kidnapped and they, they might, uh, do all sorts of nasty things to your body. Um, and one thing that's interesting is the way this story that was used in that way and may have originated in that way, then cat got a life of its own, um, when it was adapted by the community itself, um, and is repurposed and, 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 and so on. Um, and, and just sort of more broadly with rumors, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the riots of the 1960s, rumors played two very different and um, complementary roles, both in terms of helping to set off the riots, because, um, you know, with Watts, the actual incident that set it off, it was bad, but the story that spread around got a lot worse. Um, and then there were broader stories that went around about alleged plots against the ghetto and so on. Um, but meanwhile, there were these rumors going on in white circles about who was behind the riots. Where were they coming? Were there masses of armed panthers on uh, on motorcycles heading to your um, your rural community? I mean, stuff that sounds almost exactly like some of the um, Antifa rumors uh, from last year um, that, that people were telling in, in rural communities. Um, and so you had this sort of mirroring process going back and forth. And it was even possible for someone to catch wind of the other group's rumor and have it then perceived in, you know, through the mirror in a different way. So that, um, you know, someone, um, uh, you know, on the the militant black side of the barricades could hear something that's being said among the whites about what they were up to and construe that as deliberate disinformation that's being used and and then work that into your story about um, the authorities' plots against um, the inner city. So it's very complicated and it's uh, it's an important part of what a rumor does. And it's there sort of in subtext in the first f- film and is really, I think, becomes explicit in the more recent film. Um, and that's, again, just one of the interesting things about it. So I don't know if the Candyman movies are libertarian films. Probably not. But they come from a place of skepticism about state power. Uh, and that's that starts with Clive Barker's short story about um, and then is even, you know, which is about uh, public housing. And then um, that's, I think, even more present uh, in the 1990s film. And then in the new film, obviously, there's a, a strong police violence angle. Uh, and so the Candyman films are sort of built on a foundation 
of opposition to state power, including and especially state power that is nominally exercised to better people's lives and to organize society in a way that is supposed to make it um, better for more people. Uh, you know, uh, that's true. That's true in the films. And it's true, like I said, I think in the original story, Barker was very much not a libertarian. He was a, a, a kind of a leftist, but he was a particular sort of um, British left individualist uh, who 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 wrote a story and his his like the the underlying theme of his short story is that people who have a certain amount of power in society have failed to see the individualism of other people because they are judging them as groups. And so, again, these are not libertarian stories in like a, you know, a, 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 a Hayekian, you know, like philosophical sense at all, but they are stories about how state power uh, fails to to treat people as individuals and how society fails to treat people as individuals and how that robs people of their humanity and leads them to to worse lives and to suffering. I, I'd like to believe that Hayek would call Candyman a spontaneous order. <laughs> I mean, it is. I'm, I'm kidding in some ways, but also not like it does kind of have some Hayekian insights about how local knowledge um, in some ways is uh, about what's going on is what you need to understand what is happening on the ground. Because if you're just looking at it from the outside and from a position of, you know, sort of studied uh, hierarchical authority, you're not going to understand what's going on in a community. And, and, and I, I will say that, I mean, there are definite connections about why I got interested in uh, libertarian politics and why I got interested in folklore. Um, and, and it's and um, I, I see those connections um, in these films. It's probably part of why I like them. But I, I should also say, well, by the way, since we've been intellectualizing this for an hour um, um, and, and sounding like the critic, they're also just really fun, effective horror movies. I, I don't know. Um, uh, it, if you don't like horror movies, you know, you're probably not going to have a good time because you'll get scared and there's blood and so on. But um, the, if you do like them, you know, they're really well made. Um, and, and, and there's something you can go to. You don't have to sit there and, um, and, and, uh, interpret everything as you watch it. You can save that for the next day if you want to and just enjoy it. I would, I would even say these are horror films for people who don't always like horror films, especially the sort of flashier, trashier I think kind that's, of. I think that's why I enjoy yeah. it, honestly, because I'm not a big horror movie. And I came into being like, these will be okay. I'll, I'll knock them out back to back. Watching these two back to back, which I highly recommend if you have the time. Luckily, they're only an hour and a half each. So it only, it's like three hours. If you can sit for Lord of the Rings, you can watch both Candyman movies. I really, really enjoyed it because it, it, while it is very gory and hard to watch at times, it, there is enough in there and enough uh, interpreting of these symbols that uh, even the score, while it has sort of like jump scare moments, it the, normally with a horror movies, you, especially of this era, they fall into, you know, very uh, uh, well-trod paths. You know, when things are going to happen, tension ratchets up, you're expecting something to happen, but even the jump scare when the Candyman plunges his hook through the mirror at Helen for the first time, 
that is a true jump scare. There is no score when that happens. There isn't even a musical sting. There's like a very slow fade in of some pad right after that, where it, it, it really does take you by surprise. And I the score that. in the 90s film is so great. Philip Glass's uh, Philly G. You love work Philly on this. G. It's just wonderful. It's one of the few Philip Glass scores that actually feels like a Philip Glass piece also. I mean, you're listening to it, you know, this is either Philip Glass or someone trying to sound like him. It it has a kind of architectural quality to it. It seems to it seems to take up and capture physical space just in in the, its choice of arrangement and um and the, and the way it's recorded. I'm going to be completely honest. I had like pretty low expectations for both these movies. Like I'm not like I'm not a huge horror person. I like horror films, but I'm not like, oh yeah, new horror. Um and I had never I had thought I saw the older version, but once I turned it on in like 10 minutes in, I was like, hmm, ah, this is not that what I was thinking of. I was thinking of Friday the 13th. <laughs> but again, that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is that the marketing of this film and in some ways you could say the legend of this film uh, throughout the 1990s, because I didn't watch these movies in the 1990s. I did not care for them because I thought that they were just going to be more, you know, hot teens encounter with a machete, right? Like, I th- that's like, you can only watch <laughs> hot teens encounter a guy with a machete so many times. I guess, actually, you can watch it as many times as you can, but then some people do. But I can only watch that so many times. So horror sort of became disreputable again um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, especially 80s. You know, there's um, because people had come to respect sort of classics like Bride of Frankenstein and Freaks and all these great old 30s and 40s uh, um, uh, horror movies. Uh, And then um, the things got a lot gorier after. I mean, I don't I have a hard time thinking of Night of the Living Dead and Psycho as gory movies, but they were considered really <laughs> moving for like a, like bold, new scare. I, I mean, I, I've seen an old Leonard Maltin um, uh, movie guy where he gives Psycho only one or two stores stars because he thinks it's so disgusting, you know, and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, which is a really smart film, actually. Um, and then like, and then the whole slasher genre, um, really, um, then there was a moral panic in, uh, the, in the Great Britain about, so what they called video nasties because they always come up with these stupid names, um, in Britain. <laughs> and I don't know what it is about the British, the goodies and baddies and, and and um and people i just uh really but even people who were not doing the moral panic were just saying oh what's happened to horror and of course a lot of these movies were bad because you know genre movies people crank out generic versions of, of things you know but this came out i think the same year within a year of one of the first really um, smart um, intellectual assessments of the slasher subgenre, which is Carol Clover's book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which is a great book, which I recommend to people, (laughs) whether or not, I mean, if you're just interested in just like, (laughs) if you're just interested in social psychology and cultural history and so, and, and, and read the book, even if you don't, like this kind of movie. Um, and you started to have like academics taking it more seriously, critics taking it more seriously. Um, and I think it's just a coincidence that, you know, I don't think Candyman played a role in, in that, um, in, in that reassessment, but it was convenient if nothing else to have it there. When I start a horror movie review substack, it's definitely going to be called video nasties. What we saw like in both these 
movies and the short story is that there's just like so much you could talk about, which I think is also a sign of a good horror movie in, in, in my opinion. Cause like most horror movies, like they're the, they're huge plot holes or like they're just like slasher films where the, the higher the body count, the better. And the fact that we've been able to talk for over an hour about like a wide variety of things that happen in both these movies is like just telling of like, I, I think how good the movies are. Um, but the 2021 version, I think it came out in August and it's gotten like kind of mixed reviews. Um, so I, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I kind of wanted to throw it out there and see what you guys think. So um, the movie was described as at odds with itself, a clash between a solid horror spectacle with some social dilemma strings attached on the one hand and a try hard grab for too much on the other. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Like, is there too much going on? Because I mean, we I, have talked I about have, a lot. I have uh, <laughs> uh, conversed about this film with other critics and and read a number of reviews. And I think one of the issues that uh, the folks who don't like it quite as much have with this is that the the subtext of this film is not perfectly obvious. And so, on the one hand, you can read it. If you want to, just as a like a straightforward, like this is a movie about Black Lives Matter uh, and we've made a horror film that is just like Black Lives Matter. And uh, as we've talked about, like the movie also kind of seems to be questioning its own participation in like that. It seems to be basically saying, you know what? I could have made a movie that is just just a, a one note, like one one step removed metaphor for Black Lives Matter. But I didn't. I wanted to make something a little more complicated. And in complicating it, it becomes more amb- ambiguous. And in its ambiguity, I think there are sort of questions left unanswered. I think there are sort of themes that are that are not fully explored. Um, and I've heard some people say even make even criticisms I, I think are not entirely wrong, that they're that in some ways this movie is actually a little too short. And probably should have been 15 or 20 minutes longer. And there's some ideas that it sort of gestures at, but doesn't quite dig into. At the same time, I like the fact that this movie is seems to be doing not just one thing. And the one thing that it is maybe doing most, it is on the other hand saying, am I really doing that? Is that is that the is that the thing that you want? Is, I'm I'm gonna do it because that seems like the thing you want me to do. Uh, and I'm also gonna say, man, is that really what I wanted to do? Is that what we have to do in order to get your attention? And so it is engaged in reflection on itself and on its own place in the social horror discourse in a way that I think is fascinating, but I think is frustrating to some other critics who see it as uh, see it as kind of unfinished and and not as fully thought out as it could have been. I disagree with that assessment, but I will say I don't think it's completely illegitimate. Three quick points. First, it's weird to hear that people would have that reaction because I thought, if anything, it was a little bit too um, overt about its subtext. Um, I, I think maybe people are getting too used to TV shows that spill everything out, um, but be that as it may, I still like the movie. Um uh, second thing is, I remember thinking, um, at the, uh, when he, the say her, um, say his, it's say his name, right? And the, is the name of it. I remember thinking this would be too obvious if only, except they put it in the hands of this artist 
who is always kind of ambiguous in the movie how good an artist he is. You know, you can join in with the people saying, you know, maybe it is because, you know, his um, his wife or girlfriend, I don't remember which it is, is um, has this place in the community that he he's getting a little bit above his talents. And and, and he seemed he definitely there's like a leap in the quality of his work, I think, once he sort of gets possessed by the candy man. Um, Spoilers. That's not exactly what happened. Yeah, possessed is, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying this in, uh, it's not literally a possession. What you said about, um, wishing it was a little, little longer and things that they're more explored. Um, in general, I think it was just the right length. Um, I, I appreciate a movie that knows how to end when it's time to end. But one thing that I found, I don't know if it should have been more explored or if I like it better as sort of an enticing hint, but, um, the character's father, who was the, um, the uh the artist who killed himself i i wanted to see his art i wanted to know more about him i it's like i don't feel that leaves it incomplete necessarily because it's good to let me sort of wonder about that and think about it it didn't feel like um a loose end that had to be wrapped up but it was if they were going to add another 15 20 minutes that would be sort of what to, to cover but there's something to be said, and this is like the old Umberto Eco argument that, and I guess we kind of got into this when we talked about They Live on previously on Pop and Lock, you know, that one thing that helps make a really good cult movie is that feeling of incompleteness, that there's something more that you as the audience can bring to it and imagined. And, and uh, you know, perfection does not lend itself to a cult following so much as sort of something incomplete but compelling does. Maybe there will be Candyman 5 coming after this, made by Bill Condon Jr. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen as well. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>